So Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for the great gift that you have given to us in your word. And we thank you that as we come to this particular passage this morning, Father, we would ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would truly give us understanding and insight to see the truth that is here, to see the challenge, the encouragement, and even the warning that is here. And so we pray, Lord, that you would truly bless your word. And that truly as your word goes forth, and the power of the Spirit, we pray that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear the name Judas? Do you think betrayer of Jesus? Imposter? Vile? Wicked? Disloyal? A thief? A scoundrel? Or maybe the worst of the worst sinners? I'm sure whatever your thoughts are, none of them are pleasant. And certainly with what we've seen of Judas thus far in our study of Matthew, these unpleasant thoughts are all well deserved. Judas was a man filled with great evil. In fact, Jesus, in the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition. That part of that prayer is that he prays that uh, none whom the Father has given him have been lost except the son of perdition. 
literally the son of utter destruction, or we might say the son of hell. And to demonstrate just how vile of a description this is, the Apostle Paul uses the same term, son of perdition, in 2 Thessalonians 2, to describe the man of sin, that is, the final Antichrist who will rise up at the end of the age. And so, yes, Judas was truly wicked and thus deserving of the world's scorn. But as we come to our passage this morning, we see a different side of Judas. A side that might lead us to a maybe a slight softening in our thoughts and our attitudes about him. Or at the very least, we may look upon Judas now with some pity, even as we would look on someone uh, who is so caught up in their sin and, and having made a string of, of sinful bad choices and they're trapped and they're quickly headed towards self-destruction with no foreseeable way of escape. And we pity them. Well, certainly, when we hold Judas up to the religious leaders in our passage this morning... It does seem as though Judas, for all his sins and his faults, Judas is to be much more pitied than the hardened hypocrites that were the chief priests and the elders. But of course, regardless of how we may feel about Judas and the religious leaders, we know that when they stand before a just and holy God, even the Lord Jesus Christ on the last great day, they will receive their just reward for their sin. In fact, they've been condemned already because though there may have been a glimmer of sorrow and remorse for ill deeds, there was never any true repentance as they didn't believe in the only begotten Son of God for salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, as we consider this passage this morning, let this stand as a great warning to each of us that today, today is the day of salvation. And the good news of the gospel is proclaimed to you so that you might believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And that by believing, you might have the forgiveness of sins and the glorious hope of eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, as chapter 27 opens, we see that some, uh, some time has elapsed since uh, Jesus, uh, since the, the middle of the night, a trial of injustice that he endured uh, before the Sanhedrin. And it was night, likely now just after dawn. Remember, and the passage just before it, for this, the rooster had just crowed. And all the chief priests and the elders, that is, the Supreme Jewish Council, the Sanhedrin, gathered together once again to continue plotting against Jesus. Now, for all their talk about being a strict adherence to the law, the religious leaders really only followed the law when it was convenient for them. 
revealing their true colors of hypocrisy. For example, the law required, and I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the law required a day to pass between when they reach a conviction and they need to have a day to pass before you announce uh, the sentence. And the law also forbade that uh, the announcement of a, of a, um, a, a death sentence could not take place at night. It had to be made in the daytime. Well, the conviction, they reached the conviction back in chapter 26, verse 66. And here in chapter 27, verse 1, it's just barely daybreak. And they quickly gathered together to give some appearance of conformity to the law by announcing the sentence of death. Of course, ignoring the requirement of waiting an entire day before doing so. You see, from their perspective, time was was critical. In fact, they needed to act quickly before word got out about what they had done, before the larger crowds of the people in Jerusalem knew what was going on. They needed to hand Jesus over to the Roman officials as soon as possible. And and certainly that would give the appearance that perhaps it was the Romans and not them who had arrested Jesus in the first place. And the people would be upset with the Romans rather than their leaders for arresting Jesus. But there's a little problem. See, they had falsely charged and convicted Jesus of blasphemy. And the penalty in the law of Moses for such a, this uh, crime was, was death. But the Jews at this time weren't able to carry out this penalty under Roman occupation. Death sentences were something that the Romans relished and reserved for themselves. But in order for Pilate, the Roman governor, to be convinced that Jesus' crime was truly worthy of death, well, then they needed to come up with something other than a charge of blasphemy, a a religious crime, right? Because Pilate's not going to care about a violation of their religious code. And so it's likely that in this meeting, they reformulated their charges against Jesus so that Pilate would see Jesus as a threat perhaps even to the empire, and thus worthy of death. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why Jesus has shown himself to be no threat, and yet they they bind him, and they take him away to Pilate. Well, we'll see, Lord willing, uh, next time that this is precisely what they do, that they kind of shift the charges against Jesus. But it's the condemnation and the issuing of the death sentence That really grabs our attention here as it did even for someone who was likely standing by watching all these things unfold. Judas, the betrayer. In verse 3, we once again see the identification of Judas by his sinful deed. Judas is the betrayer. But seeing Jesus condemned to death is something that Judas likely hadn't really thought through. Or if he had, he's suddenly filled with regret about it. And so the reality sinks in for Judas. You see, if it weren't for his wicked deed of betrayal, well, this judgment against Jesus wouldn't have been made. And an innocent man 
wouldn't be about to be put to death. But he was going to be. And it was all because of Judas. Verse 3 and 4, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now this is, this is pretty amazing and kind of shocking that Judas would even come to this point. We, again, we think of him as this, this vile person, and yet he comes to this point. He was remorseful. And some translations may have here that he was ashamed or that he changed his mind or even that he repented himself. And then look how he shows that remorse. He actually brings back the 30 pieces of silver that he was given to betray Jesus. And not only this, but but look at this clear confession of sin. I have sinned. And then he is specific about how he has sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so Judas nails it. He knew exactly what he did was wrong, that it was a great evil, that it was a terrible sin against Jesus, who had embraced Judas as a friend and who had invited him into this close fellowship that was the disciples, the twelve disciples. You may wonder, is this the same Judas that we know is a scoundrel and the epitome of evil? I mean, clearly he's seen the error of his ways and and was so disturbed by what he had done that he appears to go and, and even attempts to make things right. And he publicly confesses his sin and he even returns the profit that his sin earned him. Does this sound like the son of perdition to you? Why hasn't Judas, why wasn't he forgiven as Peter was for his denials? Especially since Judas seems to have gone through all the steps that we encourage people to do who have come to a point where they acknowledge their sin and their sinfulness. He feels sorry for his sin. And he's confessed it. What more should he do? Why isn't Judas hailed as a Christian saved by grace? What did he miss? Well, the truth is that though Judas did do some things right here, there were some key things that he didn't do. First, we should look at the word remorseful. Though it has some relation, it's actually not the typical word that we find in the New Testament when we talk about repentance. And both words have this sense of, of changing one's mind about what was done. But, but really the key difference is, is that the word used here for remorseful is a change of mind connected to a change in feelings. Whereas the usual word for repentance is a, is a complete change of mind and, and even a change of direction. That is, when you repent, you, you turn away from sin, committing yourself not to do it again. You see, Judas only feels bad about what he's done and the consequences that it has now brought. Now, it's true that he's filled with such regret that he even returns the money that he was given to carry out the betrayal. And again, he actually confesses his sin. 
And it's certainly good and right to do these things, but that's all he does. Indeed, there are many who come to the realization that they have sinned and that they've done something wrong. And they feel sorry about it and and they even regret doing it. They may even try to find some way to make things right and in order to relieve themselves of any reminder of their guilt. But you see, that's not true repentance. True repentance certainly involves confessing one's sin and, and feeling sorry for what was done. But true repentance involves actually turning away from that sin. And you see, if you're going to turn away from, from something, well, it implies that you must then turn toward something or someone else. And you see, it's that someone else that makes all the difference. What do you turn toward after you have confessed and felt sorry for your sin? Well, Judas... Judas went to the chief priests, and again, we might think, well, that's understandable. They were the ones who dealt in such spiritual matters, and if you have a spiritual problem, you should maybe go to spiritual leaders. And in this case, we can say it was even quite bold for, for Judas to do so, because by going to the chief priests and confessing his sin... Judas was actually also giving them an opportunity to think about their role in the whole wicked deed that had transpired. And right, Judas would come forth and say, look, what I've done, I, I've sinned. What I've done, what, what we've done was sinful. We've, we've betrayed an innocent man. And so in this sense, it was good for Judas to go to the priest who to almost invite them to repentance. But you see, Judas never went to God. He never brought his sin to God's attention and confessed it. You see, from his perspective, his sin was against men and not against God. And that's the problem. You see, unlike David, who David, the the great king of Israel in the Old Testament, after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan for his sin of murder and adultery, David confesses to God in Psalm 51, he sinned against against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against himself, his wife, and even all the whole nation. He sinned against all these people. But David, in Psalm 51, cries out to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned. David goes to the Lord because he sinned ultimately against God. Judas goes to men seeking forgiveness. And the thing is, he doesn't even go to the man against whom he sinned. He could have at least gone to Jesus or ran after Jesus and and confessed. But no, he goes to the chief priests and he basically says, I've sinned. You need to help me. You need to do something about it. In a sense, he's just pushing off the responsibility to others. But more importantly here, Judas fails to acknowledge the truth 
that Jesus had earlier revealed to his disciples in John 14, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, Jesus, or excuse me, Judas sought another mediator, the chief priest. And Judas had rejected the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately then, though Judas was sorry for his betrayal, and though he confessed it, he never confessed and repented of his unbelief. Indeed, he never even regretted the fact that he didn't believe and confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is an important truth, brothers and sisters, for us to wrestle with. See, when we sin, though we may sin against ourselves or sin against one another or sin against our neighbor or sin against someone out on the street, though you may share and confess that sin to someone and express your regret, ultimately, if you've sinned, you've sinned against God and His holiness. And so you must then not just confess to the person or confess to others about what you've done, but you need to confess your sin to the Lord and express your sorrow and grief to Him, seeking His mercy and His grace for forgiveness. You see, because God alone is the one who can truly forgive sins. And this is one of the great errors of Roman Catholicism. You see, they encourage people to go and and to confess to and and seek forgiveness from human priests. These priests who can really do nothing to forgive them of their sins or grant them pardon. And so instead of humbling themselves before the living God and pleading for God's mercy through Jesus Christ, our only mediator, they go to a man and they look to him for forgiveness even as Judas does here. So not only did Judas go to the wrong place to confess, but again, he never truly repented. Again, keep this in mind, friends. Mere sorrow for sin and acknowledging that you've done something wrong, that's not true repentance. We find true repentance defined for us in the Westminster Shorty Catechism question and answer 87, which is, what is true repentance? A repentance is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. It's not just feeling bad about your sin and what you've done. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. But it's turning away from that sin, turning to God, confessing your sin to God, pleading His grace and His mercy to forgive you of that sin, and then committing yourself to walk in new obedience. Judas never turned to God to seek forgiveness, and thus was never forgiven for his sin. In fact, he wasn't even forgiven and encouraged by 
the chief priests who coldly turned him away, saying in verse 4, what is that to us? You see to it. Right? Basically, tell them, we don't care. It's your problem. You deal with it. Because Judas refused to deal with it, by humbling himself before the Lord and, and going to the throne of grace, he seemingly saw no other option. He saw no other salve for his guilt-burdened soul. And so in verse 5, realizing that even the money had received was no help to a guilty conscience, he angrily threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. He departed and he went... And he hanged himself. Overcome with great despair. And thinking that his sin was so great that there was nothing that he could do to make things right. Indeed, really, he was too proud to even seek the mercy of the Lord. Judas tragically ends his own life. Dying in his sins. And leaving himself exposed to the eternal wrath and curse of God for his sin. Now, we shouldn't get the wrong idea here. Because some think that because of what happened with Judas, they think that somehow that suicide is the unpardonable sin. It's not. We've already considered the unpardonable sin several chapters ago. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, though suicide is a grievous sin, indeed it's, it's murder, it's self-murder, and thus violates the Sixth Commandment, it's not the unpardonable sin. And we trust that God will deal justly and righteously and with abounding grace and mercy, undeservedly so, on the last great day, with those even with those who have professed believers in Christ who have committed this sin. And we trust that to the Lord. It's not our place to judge. But the reality is, indeed, neither suicide nor even his betrayal of Jesus are the chief sins by which Judas will be condemned before Christ on the day of judgment. It's not the fact that he's committed suicide. It's not even the fact that he betrayed Jesus. No, Judas' chief sin, and really the chief sin that ultimately condemns anyone to an eternity in hell, is unbelief. What makes Judas' story so tragic is that he was given such great opportunity. And on a daily basis, he had the truth revealed to him clearly and plainly. And he saw all these great wonders and and miracles and had things explained to him. He knew clearly the way to eternal life. And yet he refused to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Love the God, this is the sin that will condemn him. And has condemned him already. 
And it's the sin that then opened his heart to carry out a multitude of other grievous sins, including his betrayal of Jesus and his suicide, both of which he must also give account on the last great day. Unbelief is a sin that condemns one to hell. Now as tragic as this account of Judas is though, in many ways, especially here just before his end, Judas actually appears actually in in a much better light than the chief priests and the elders of the Sanhedrin who had conspired against Jesus. You see, Judas was at least remorseful. And he acknowledged his sin. But these, these wicked men show no remorse at all, let alone true repentance. And they certainly don't even confess any sin. They're far above that. In fact, though, how could they? You see, if they acknowledged Judas' sin, well, then they would have to acknowledge their own sin. Because they were co-conspirators. right? They were the ones who paid the money to Judas to betray him. They too had sinned. But their hearts were hardened. There was no remorse, no confession, no acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And because of this lack of remorse and confession of sin, it's no wonder then that they offered Judas no comfort. that they were the spiritual leaders of Israel. Wasn't it their duty to minister to the spiritual needs of the people and, and offer up help to, to the sinners so that they might be unburdened from the weight of guilt upon them and upon their conscience? Indeed, that was their role. Judas had come to them and he had confessed his sin. But these spiritual leaders did nothing to help to relieve his burdened conscience. In fact, they only made it worse with their cold response. What is that to us? You see to it. It's not our problem. You got yourself into this mess. Well, it's up to you to get yourself out. We can't be bothered with this. See, at the very least, at the very least, they could have pointed Judas to the temple. Look, go, Judas, go to the temple. He could have told him, this is the sacrifice that you should offer for this sin. And they could have encouraged him and reminded him of of God's abounding grace and mercy toward the undeserving sinner, perhaps even quoting from Psalm 103. Or even reminding of David's words in Psalm 51 that it's a broken and contrite heart that is the acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. They could have encouraged him, Judas, if you would only cry out to the Lord in faith. As you offer your sacrifice before the Lord, then the Lord be faithful to hear your prayer and wash you and cleanse you from your sin. But they didn't offer any of that. They left him and even encouraged him on his path to self-destruction. Truly, as shepherds of Israel, failed shepherds of Israel, Judas' blood would be upon their heads. Yet if they were to tell him to offer some sacrifice, and again pointing him to the mercy of God for forgiveness, you see, if they did that, 
well, then they would be condemned in their own hearts for not going ahead and doing the very same thing. Because they were guilty of innocent blood, even as Judas was. And their cold response to Judas displays their own proud and sin-hardened hearts. Hard hearts which only continued to grow harder. After Judas' action of tossing the money in the temple, they're, they're left with a bit of a dilemma, right? What, what do we do with this money? Verse 6, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. Now this is a puzzling situation to be in. On the one hand, they're correct. Ill-gotten gain, especially money given as a bribe and that was used to, to shed innocent blood, well, that would be polluted and tainted by these sins. And it would have defiled the other gifts in the temple treasury that were otherwise freely and graciously given and we assume legally acquired. And so their concern for the sacred things and the corruption of the sacred things is remarkable and noteworthy. But where was that concern when they took the money out of the temple treasury to give to Judas as a bribe? Indeed, the only reason that it was blood money and defiled wasn't because Judas confessed it to be so, but because they themselves made it that way because they gave it to Judas so that their chief desire to put Jesus to death would be accomplished. It's truly despicable when you think about it, their hypocrisy which is on display here. And even calling it blood money themselves should have convicted them of their own shameful guilt and involvement in this evil plot. But they refused to see it. They refused to humble themselves. And so what do they do? Well, they use the money to purchase a field in order to have a place to bury strangers. This way, if any foreigner, and this might have been their intent, if a foreigner or even a faithful Jew came to Jerusalem for one of the festivals and they happened to die during the visit, well, you've got to have a place to bury them. Well, here's this field, the old potter's field, that you can, we can bury these strangers in. How noble and how compassionate. Right? The people even would have praised the chief priest for thinking of, of such a thing. Hey, that's a wonderful idea. We should have done this a long time ago. We see, but this just adds to their hypocrisy. They would cover over their sin and, and use defiled money in order to win praise and favor before the people. It's unimaginable how low they're willing to stoop for self-glory and to maintain their outward appearance of righteousness. But much to, to, to their dismay, their otherwise good gesture gets tainted anyway. It was either because word got out that they used this blood money to purchase this field, or because, as it seems from Acts 1, that this was the same field where Judas hung himself, or perhaps it was, it was both things. The chief priests received no honor from this deed, as the field became known as the field of blood, a cursed and a desolate place. A defiled place where the dead are buried. But for the chief priests and the other religious leaders, again, they only further harden their hearts. 
they would reject Jesus. They would testify against Him before Pilate. They would mock Him while He hangs on the cross. And they would never repent. They would never turn to God, seeking God's grace and mercy for forgiveness. They would continue in their unbelief. But it's not like they would get away with it. Because the day of the reckoning would soon come even as it had for Judas. And it would first come in in 70 AD when the whole uh, Jerusalem and then the temple itself was destroyed and the people were scattered about. And it will certainly come the final day of reckoning when Christ returns in power and glory and they will shudder in fear because of their unbelief in the one that they put to death. Now we may wonder... Though at this point, why why did Matthew interrupt this account of of Jesus' trial? This has kind of all been about Jesus. In Matthew 26, 27, we have Jesus in the garden being arrested, and all these things were, were marching toward the cross and the empty tomb. So why does Matthew interrupt this account and tell us, about Judas and the chief priests and even this seemingly unnecessary detail about the plot of land which they purchased. What do we glean from this? Well, first, we see in the final two verses here that this account, that even the small detail about the purchase of the potter's field is a fulfillment of the Scriptures. And of course, this has been an important theme for, for Matthew all along to show forth not only the truth of the Scriptures, but especially how Jesus was led and guided by them and how He had fulfilled them as the promised Messiah. And so it certainly serves Matthew's overall purpose. And though Matthew here mentions only Jeremiah, the direct quotation itself comes from Zechariah 11. right? And that gets people... Worked up well, he said, says Jeremiah, but the quote is actually from Zechariah. Oh, there's an error in the Bible. Well, not necessarily. The direct quote is, is from Zechariah 11, but Jeremiah 19, and you can go back and read uh, the first uh, 13 or so verses of Jeremiah 19, you can find echoes of Jeremiah 19 throughout this whole account that Matthew has included for us. And so it's likely that Matthew only mentions Jeremiah because, see, Jeremiah was, was one of the major prophets. And everybody knew who Jeremiah was. Zechariah was one of the minor prophets and not as familiar. So there's no, no discrepancy whatsoever. Now in Zechariah 11, the 30 pieces of silver was given in order to get rid of Israel's shepherd. A, a low, miserable price that is fulfilled here when the true shepherd of Israel, the Lord Jesus, is valued at the same low price. And then Jeremiah 19 is echoed again here in, in relation to, to Jerusalem. and uh, Speaking of all the people, Jerusalem and Judah shedding innocent blood. There's the role of the chief priests in this sin. There's the, the potter's field, which was uh, near uh, the Valley of Hinnom, a place that is referred to uh, in Jeremiah 19 as the Valley of Slaughter. 
field of blood? And so the fulfillment of these scriptures stands as a warning against the religious leaders of God's displeasure and His coming judgment. And even the very last words of the quotation which Matthew gives here, as the Lord directed me. Even these words show that despite the evil plots and sin and their planning and their scheming of these wicked men, ultimately it's the Lord Himself who's in control and He's working out all these events for His good purpose to secure our salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. But the inclusion of this passage also stands as a warning. Again, we mentioned this earlier, a warning to those who either are in the church or those outside of the church, to those who who don't truly know Christ or the blessed mercy of His forgiveness and the salvation that He accomplished. For those who are caught up in sin, at times, the temporal effects of that sin will come bearing down upon you. Feelings of heavy guilt, remorse, grief, and even an acknowledgement of your own wrongdoing. But simply admitting what you've done, how you've sinned, and have perhaps hurt others and how you now feel bad about it and even sorrowful, simply acknowledging your guilt and remorse before others isn't enough. You must truly turn away from your sin and turn toward God and make your confession to Him. Because against Him and Him alone, you have sinned. You violated His law and have offended His holiness. You must take your sin to Him so you can truly be free from the burden of guilt and shame. But even repentance alone isn't enough. You must also believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might be saved. Believe that He truly is the Son of the living God. Believe that His suffering and death on the cross was the once for all perfect sacrifice for your sins. Believe that Jesus died for you and paid the debt for your sin. And as you believe these things, you must then show your love and gratitude to Him by committing to forsake your sin at all times and rest in His grace and mercy for your forgiveness and for the daily strength that you need to press on in life for His glory. Beloved of God, by believing on Jesus Christ in this way, you will have that sure and certain hope Not only that your sins will be forgiven because of what Christ accomplished, but that you will stand in the glorious presence of Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit where there is fullness of joy forever and ever and ever. That you will be there in their glorious presence. All to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you, Father, for this, this warning, this challenge to us. Yes, we often sin and we 
do things wrong and we hurt people. We say we, we're sorry, we, we're regretting it. We're filled with remorse. We may even confess, yes, I did wrong. But Lord, unless we turn to You and confess those sins to You, we have not truly repented. And we have not truly then been forgiven. And especially, Lord, we pray that in our hearts, in each of the hearts of those that are here, that we truly would believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. That we would believe in what He did for us and accomplished for us. How He secured deliverance for us and the forgiveness of sins by His death from the cross, on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead on the third day. Father, we pray that You would apply these truths to our hearts by the power of Your Spirit so that we would truly be forgiven. Not just in the temporary now and made to feel better, but that we will be forgiven and have the hope and the confidence that we will stand in Your glorious presence forever and ever and ever. Father, we praise You and thank You for this gospel, this good news. And we ask, Father, that You would truly empower us because we're not to keep this good news to ourselves, but we're called to share it and proclaim it with those around us. That we pray that You would give us boldness, that You would lead us to those who are ready to hear the gospel. That they too might be truly forgiven as they repent of their sins and as they believe in Christ. Uh, we just praise you and thank you for these blessed truths. And we ask that you would truly watch over us and draw us all closer to yourself. That we might be those faithful servants who do all we do for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.